Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is the place, and nerds run the world. And without further ado... All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Today, as our special guest, we have Jacqueline J. Koyanagi. Did I pronounce that anywhere close to the realm of close? <laughs> it's Koyanagi. Yeah, I wasn't anywhere in the same ballpark. I'm not even <laughs> sure I was in the same state. But uh, we'll just smile and nod, and I'll call you Jay from now on, because I can pronounce that. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, Jacqueline, or Jay, as she prefers, see, I skipped the last name, dear listener, uh, writes science fiction featuring women of color who love other women, disabled characters, neuroatypical characters, and diverse relationship styles. Her novel, Ascension, landed on the 2014 James Tiptree Jr. Honor List. Her short fiction has appeared in the anthologies by Haikasuru and Candlemark. Uh, and Candlemark and Glim, excuse me, and she writes for multiple serials with Serial Box. Uh, this, did we get that right? Because I did shamelessly steal it from your social media. You did get that right. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So the second part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we found them. So I actually found her through her YouTube channel. Uh, she had a great video on living life with chronic illnesses that uh, I found when I was, uh, my wife got her her diagnosis. Uh, and when I realized she was an author, I thought it was too cool not to, to fit her in. And uh, I guess the rest, as they say, is history. What about you, Winder? How did you find the one, the only Miss J? I actually found uh, this very interesting guest who, geez, I can't wait to get to the uh, to the episode here. Uh, through JR, he, he's just got a knack at finding interesting people. So I'm not even going to lie about this one. This is, uh, I'm intrigued. It's not lying. It's embellishing the truth. We're writers, remember? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the first question is the, re- the religion question. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? I am a staunch follower of Star Trek. Not going to lie. Oh. Do you have a favorite? Why? Ooh, two oh, two questions at once. <laughs> do I, the, the do you have a favorite is always like asking you asking me to pick between my children right i love them all so much <laughs> but um i have a i think i have a sentimental attachment to the next generation because that's what i grew up with and yeah. i also i, I enjoy all of the, of the rest of them but i also really enjoy deep space nine after i took a second look at it as an adult because when i was younger i couldn't really appreciate it but now i absolutely love deep, deep space nine well, what about you guys? So before before we answer, because we will, but uh, what do you think of the new Picard one that's coming out where they've got him coming out of retirement? Oh, I couldn't be more excited. Who doesn't love yeah, Jean-Luc Picard? I'm intrigued. See, I was actually more intrigued. So if you watch the trailer, dear listener, and I'll, I'll make a note to throw that in the show notes, they have uh, scenes of him at home on his vineyard in for presumably France. And then they've got this uh, young lady who's running from all these bad guys going full Matrix on them and, like, kicking their butt, which seemed kind of cool because they don't really tell you anything about her or how it's all possible that this girl that looks like she's really young is, like, beating up these full-fledged dudes. So you don't know if she's, like, a robot, if she's some sort of strange alien that's super strong or what. But it just looked cool. So. And yeah, uh, as far as uh, – pick- Go ahead. Sorry about that. <laughs> I was just going to say that uh, Picard was kind of like my television – father figure growing up. And that's where I learned all mm. of my earliest concepts of ethics was from Star Trek and Next Generation in particular. So I just have a very special place in my heart. 
for the whole se- whole series. Perfect, perfect. All right. So as for uh, me, I prefer uh, Star Wars. I've always liked the space fantasy, and uh, <laughs> something about the Luke journey. You know, the the average farm boy made good. I kind of I can kind of resonate with that everyman approach. I mean, yeah, I, I like the uh, I like Firefly because I'll say in Star Wars, Han Solo is my my favorite character, and Firefly is very Han Solo ish, where where they're not necessarily good guys. But they do good things, generally speaking. So, and and they're they're not the they're not even the, the heroic type. They're they're the not the reluctant hero, but maybe maybe the, the, the hero we didn't expect kind of thing. So I, I really like that kind of story. Hero in exile. Yeah. All right. So the next question is what do you love about science fiction as a genre? Oh my gosh. I mean what's not to love? But I will say that I specifically love that it explores what could be, uh, whether it's what could be in our own future, what could be had things been a little bit different. Um, And I also love that it explores or can explore what conscious creatures might be capable of. And that applies to humans. It applies to other intelligent species in the universe. It applies to the possibility of conscious AI. Uh, so I just, to me, consciousness is the most interesting topic and question that there is. And science fiction is primed to talk about that. Mm, yeah. So I had to go from, from your love of science fiction into writing in it. Did you start in sci-fi or did you start somewhere else? Uh, yeah. I mean, of course, most writers write this and that as kids. And I wrote everything from, you know, random fantasy stories as a kid to something that I guess you could sort of call science fiction. Um, but when it became more of a serious thing, I was, I was definitely an adult. And I think it's just that um, there were all these ideas floating around in my head around the intersection of technology and the human experience and the experience of the other, again, such as extraterrestrial life or uh, AI. And I just wanted to explore these ideas beyond taking in information that others have mm. um, shared with us through through scientific research and say philosophy of mind. I wanted to explore that in the story format and see what any given individual might experience or do or accomplish given these, uh, given a context like the expansion of technology or the expansion of consciousness. So does that mean you you get all um, into like transhumanism as an idea about what it means to be human? When do you stop being sure. and become something else? Yes, definitely. Winder and I are working on a mm. series about cyborg, so we've been we've been reading a lot of that stuff. That's fantastic, so, right? So, all right. So, what is the single largest um, influence on your writing? Is there one author you've always enjoyed and try to emulate? Is there an experience as a child that you think affects you? What is it you think that affects your writing the most? That's always a hard one. Um, I, I think in my case, there's not a singular influencer or one writer that I kind of try to emulate or anything. I do think that when you produce creative work, or really when you do anything in life, everything you've consumed, everything you've experienced up to that point, it will invariably influence you in some way, consciously or unconsciously. And I'd say that's definitely the case for me. Um, I also think just these questions about, uh, again, consciousness and I guess pulling back from Star Trek, the you know ethical questions about the application of technology or cultural relativism or lack thereof, you know, all of these kinds of questions 
um, are probably bigger influences on me than any singular other writer. Um, of course, there are so many writers I admire and love, um, but I think I tend to keep these um, kind of philosophical questions at the forefront of when I'm doing sitting down to do work. Okay. Nice. All right, dear listener. Uh, this is the part of the interview where I list the various things that uh, Jay has written. So we have her novel Ascension. She's written the Ninth Step Station, the complete season one. Specifically, she wrote episodes the uh, 1.8, the Clawed Limb, and 1.4, the Blackout Killer. Uh, she writes in the Alternus series. Uh, she wrote To Shape the Dark and Phantasm Japan, Fantasies Light and Dark from and About Japan. Uh, and that appears to be nonfiction, correct? Uh, no, no. All of it is fiction. Okay. Well, all those sound amazing. Today we're going to talk about your your stories posted through the Serial Box website. Uh, specifically, let's talk about the Serial Box for a minute. What, what can you tell us about about the Serial Box program? It's awesome, you guys. So <laughs> everyone is familiar with Netflix, and a lot of people are familiar with Audible. And these are subscription-based programs where you pay monthly and you have access to a full library of content. Well, on Serial Box, I don't believe they've implemented a monthly fee program, but you can create an account and then you can purchase entire series of stories. And the way Serial Box produces their content is modeled after television. Uh, it's not television, so it's not a visual media sort of thing, but it is modeled after television in the sense that each series has a head writer who you know, came up with the initial concept. And then you hire a team of writers and you all get together and we physically get together in person for um, a writing summit. And we have the writer's room and we just spend several days in a row doing nothing but talking about the characters, the world, you know, building out the world, going over the season, the overall plot, hammering out what's going to happen in a general sense in each of the episodes, divvying up the episodes. And it's, it's a really fun way to create a story. And um, it really, it, it can resonate with the listener who is more accustomed to the television format, because it really is just like television, just that it's in the written word and also, you know, in an audio format. So you all have to live close to wherever um, wherever the Serial Box Corporation is? Or do you guys, like, fly in for these short stints of, like, essentially writing camp? How does it work? We fly in. Yeah, we fly in. So um, wow. it's, it's been over a weekend, typically, uh, although it doesn't necessarily have to be. And we'll fly in and we'll um, spend those days just really intensively working on the series. And then we disperse and we work uh, remotely from then on out for the rest of the season. And then if the, if the show gets renewed, then we do it again for the next season. Okay. So, so how'd you come to write for, for this program? Um, they uh, got in contact with me and we talked about whether it would be a good fit. And after some discussion, we mutually decided it would be. And the rest is history. So nice. was it Ascension, your book that's published on Amazon that they found you through? Um, Ascension is, is not published through Amazon. It was actually published through Prime Books, uh, Imprint Mask Books. Okay. But um, it is available on Amazon. Um, okay. But yes, I believe that's probably, it's, it was probably Ascension, possibly um, that my story in Phantasm Japan, uh, because Night Step takes place in Japan. And that was the first season, or sorry, excuse me, the first um, series that I worked with uh, Serial Box on. 
Okay. So in looking into this so website, I noticed that Serial Box um, doesn't have a review platform like we're used to uh, with Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, and the like. Uh, so is there anywhere specifically that readers uh, or listeners, because I understand you can get both available through the website, uh, is there anywhere they can go to leave their thoughts on various episodes or, or series? That's a, that's a really great question. Um, I know some people have been, of course, writing reviews on their own review websites as, as they will. Um, but also Goodreads is a great place to leave reviews. Okay. And um, I think a lot of readers have been doing that. Yeah. So if you could do Goodreads, then presumably somewhere like a book bub or something as well? Because I know people have leave reviews sure, there. Yeah. Okay. Um, just it was it was not something we're familiar with and so we're going to presume although if you have listened to anything on this website dear listener you should reach out in the comments when we post this and and tell us what you liked but presumably they might not know either so uh, i found yeah. two mm-hmm. of your cereal box stories that uh, that interested me which you mentioned were the only two that you wrote so it's a perfect coincidence but uh first let's let's talk about <laughs> ninth step station since you just mentioned that how did you come up with the idea or the premise for the series now you mentioned there's a head writer so with, did it start with them? Yes. So Malka Older is the head writer of Ninth Step Station. Um, listeners may be familiar with her. She's fantastic. She actually also heads up their Orphan Black series, um, which Serial Box has picked up the story of the TV series Orphan Black. So go check that out too. Um, but yeah, she came up with the original concept of the overall world, the, you know, the setting, the background information um, that sort of kicks off the story, as well as the two main characters and the general concept of those. And then when we all got together in the writer's room, she presents us all with this story Bible, the series Bible. And pretty much um, a, a lot of that then becomes up to us collectively as a group to refine, change here and there, really flesh out the world, really get into the nitty gritty of, of the history of how things led up to what's happening in the world um, as the series starts. So yeah, it's a really it's a really collaborative process, which was very different for me. And I know for a lot of writers, it's very different because it's such a solitary thing that we do. <laughs> so this is a really fun and collaborative way to do some storytelling. So when you have um, multiple ideas, and obviously you can't pick all ideas because sometimes the ideas conflict with each other, is it uh, like you guys do a vote or is it the head writer sort of acts as the general and says, we're going to take this option? It's um, My experience so far has really been that the good ideas, not even good, but all the very best ideas sort of rise to the top and the stuff that ends up not uh, getting acted on sort of settles down and we, we kind of forget about it. And as we all talk about what to do with, uh, say, a particular character or a particular plot arc, it's really more of an ongoing conversation. And, you know, we kind of have this, it's not really a rule, but it's, it's kind of a, a spirit, like part of the spirit of the thing is that if you reject someone's idea, say, I don't know if I like that idea, Hopefully you can have something in your back pocket to suggest to replace it or to enhance it, perhaps, so that it's not just shooting it down. It's actually continuing to move the process forward. And that spirit of collaboration is is where that comes from, so that we're always focusing on how to make the story better um, and always coming to the table with with ideas and really riffing off of each other. And I found it's, it's very organic and I haven't really had a situation that I've personally experienced, at least, where... Um, people were really in a strong disagreement and having a hard time coming to a resolution. We all seem to kind of ultimately see where things are going and, and really stay on the same page. It's, 
been great. That makes sense. That almost sounds like the uh, the acting model, the yes and approach. I, yes. <laughs> we've uh, yeah. we've interviewed some um, co-writing teams that use that approach. So we are familiar. Um, so normally, um, since we wanted to have room to talk about uh, both series, uh, serials, I guess, uh, instead of asking a dozen questions about what the um, ninth step station might be comparable to. Uh, instead, we're going to ask you directly. And so what do you think uh, the, the series is like, so we can give listeners a little bit of a flavor that they could relate to. So, so ninth steps. Oh, oh go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say um, ninth steps flavor is definitely very distinctive. Um and I think that a lot of listeners who enjoy the sort of cyberpunk feel aesthetic, um, I guess the, the classic kind of cyberpunk in Japan, they're going to enjoy this because it's near future Japan. And we do have, you know, we can get into the tech a little later, but we do, we do have advanced tech, but not so far in the future that it isn't, it's utterly alien, utterly unfamiliar. And it's a mixture of this sort of cyberpunk aesthetic with a geopolitical conflict that's happening in Japan in the story that has to do with divvying up Tokyo into different sectors that are controlled by different nations or groups of nations, such as the United States, Japan, China, and ASEAN. And then the characters that we have are two cops, basically. One is actually a detective for Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department, and the other one is a uh, U.S. peacekeeper who gets seconded into the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department. And so the story is a procedural in the classic sense that it focuses on the actual procedure of solving a crime. It's not fixated on, say, like the crime scene investigation element. It's actually the detective work, the feet on the on the ground, talking to witnesses. It's It's a lot of fun. Okay. So can you tell us anything about your main character or characters in the Ninth Step Station? What makes him or her unique in the crowded field of science fiction? Oh, sure. So our two main characters in Ninth Step are Miyako and Emma. That's the respectively the detective and the U.S. peacekeeper turned detective. Uh, and Miyako, she is actually a former Olympian. And um, she didn't really place the way she wanted to, so it's kind of kind of a sore spot for her. Um, but uh, yeah, so she works for Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department as a detective. And uh, Emma is the U.S. peacekeeper. And she's done a lot of work all over the world uh, as a U.S. peacekeeper. And because of the conflict in Tokyo, the different sectors of Tokyo being kind of uh, contested between China and Japan and ASEAN and the U.S., um, she gets involved in the Tokyo Metropolitan Police in order to try to, you know, help keep the peace and also have, be the feet on the ground, be the eyes on the ground for the U.S. Uh, interests. And so these two characters, they don't know each other when the story starts. And of course, they're assigned to each other. And you've got the, the female buddy cop situation that I think that we're all having a lot of fun writing and readers really seem to resonate with. So is the tone more noir or is it more comedic or how do you, how do you run the run that? Sure, uh, it's definitely not comedic, although there are you know amusing moments. It's more it's it's I would say yeah, perhaps a little more noir, but with the cyberpunk kind of feel. Do you have any uh, secondary characters you can tell us about without 
uh, revealing any spoilers? Definitely have to be careful with spoilers. <laughs> um, we have uh, a few characters in the Tokyo Metropolitan Police who are definitely interesting. Um, one is, his name is Kensuke, and he's kind of the flashy guy. You know, he's got this iridescent hair, and he's definitely very, very pretty. And he works with the Yakuza, um, and he's kind of the uh, go-between between the Tokyo Metropolitan Police and the local um, gangs. And I won't go too far into his character so that the readers can experience what he's like and what his connections are to the other characters, uh, but he's a lot of fun. So finally, does your story have any bad guys for the main characters to confront? Um, obviously, again, no spoilers. Oh, yes. They do. Every, every episode, first of all, is a new bad guy to confront because it's a police procedural. So we have murderers and we have you know, gang activity and we have... Um, uh, thefts and of course all throughout this story woven into the different crimes and the strategies they use to solve them are the you know the new technologies that come into play uh, both the sort of general market technologies and black market technologies so i would say that all of these things are elements that can be considered bad guys <laughs> um whether we're talking about the actual criminals or we're talking about some of the tech elements that are utilized by the criminal elements um and then we have the geopolitical elements that are happening and of course when you get into geopolitics the question of who's good and who's bad becomes very murky so when you um and we should have asked this in the beginning so with cereal box people are used to audiobooks on Amazon where it's almost just the narrator reading. Yes, he'll do some voices, but that's it. Uh, how far into um, crossing the line from just an audiobook to more of a uh, radio show does Serial Box, or at least the ones you're familiar with, go? I would say it's probably in between the two because um, they don't just have the narrator reading as you might in a standard audiobook. They also add in sound effects. So as you're walking down the street with the narrator, you're hearing some of the traffic. And <laughs> nice. of course, depending on what the story is, you might have more sort of fantastical elements of uh, the sound effects. And then, you know, I, I mentioned Orphan Black earlier, which I just bring up because it, it's potentially a familiar title, a familiar story to some of your listeners. They got um, Tatiana, the main actress for that story, to do the narration for this series. So she's doing the voices of her characters. Um, and it's, it's quite, quite impressive. So the reason I asked is because when she was talking about the police procedural and each episode was sort of a standalone unit, I was picturing law and order and, and wondering if I'm going to hear that donk donk in the background <laughs> at the beginning of every episode. I'm sorry. My mom likes that. So I've seen lots and lots of episodes of law and order. So if, my so. dad ever if my dad ever disappears, I'm telling you, I know where to look. Um, <laughs> all right. All right. So we, uh, we know every literary universe has its own internally consistent technology and rules of science. So what sort of tech can we expect from Ninth Step Station? So are we talking FTL, ray guns, teleporters? Spill the beans, madam. Sure. I mean, that's the fun stuff, right? So um, it's a few decades into the future. So it's not, you know, we don't have FTL, no ray guns, nothing like that. But we do have some advanced tech, and we are using a lot A lot of what we develop in the writer's room for the technology is extrapolated from what is currently being developed today. So we imagine, assume this technology that people are working on right now, cutting edge as far as we know, um, 
what happens if they're successful in their endeavors and where does that go in a few decades? Um, so, for example, instead of cell phones, a lot of people have what we call sleeves, data sleeves. And it's sort of like in the writer's room, we likened it to a tech slap bracelet. <laughs> um, it's a little oh, bit bigger yeah. than, say, a slap bracelet was from the 80s and 90s. But um, it wraps around those. your. Yeah, me too. I had all of them. <laughs> but uh, you can have it wrapped around your arm and use it kind of like, an, say, like an Apple Watch or something just far sleeker and, and larger. Or you can pull it off, unfurl it, and flatten it out, and you can use it on your table. Um, you can also hook it, hook it up to other tech in order to, say, project images onto a screen, things like that. So that's the, an example of the kind of tech we're dealing with. We also have body augmentation, um, and people have different attitudes toward it. Some people find it kind of repugnant because you are changing the human body. Other people go all out and kind of change the kind of joints that they have in their legs, and they might add a stabilizing tail, um, you know, that sort of thing. So we definitely have some of that. I wouldn't say that everyone walking down the street looks like an animal now, <laughs> like an actual, you know, leopard or something. But um, you will have elements like subcultures of people who are really into it. You might have particular bars that you would go to if that's kind of your scene. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably a good taste. So you get to spend a lot of time reading the uh, DARPA and all the other uh, research organization stuff. Well, you know, if I told you that, I would have to kill you. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, save me from myself, Winder. <laughs> so does your universe have aliens in it? It does not. I mean, perhaps in okay. the same way that perhaps it does in the real world. But no, we don't have aliens in Night Substation. Okay. All right. So uh, Ninth Step Station is clearly a part of a series. I know because it says so in the title. Uh, there's currently one season out in the series with one more up for pre-order on Zero Box's website. Seriously, people check it out. It looks pretty pretty amazing. And I have to say the covers that they did for their each little icon are awesome. Um, and I don't normally say that because I'm colorblind, but even I could see how cool they were. But uh, so will there be more from these characters? Uh, where do you see it going next? I can't say a lot about where it's going, uh, but we are currently writing the second season. Um, so it has been renewed for another season and you will get to spend more time with Miyako, Emma and everyone else. Um, and yeah, we're keeping, I can say that we're keeping the procedural format because that is the spirit of the show while expanding out on more of the geopolitical things that happened in the first season. And that's probably about all I can say about the actual story because I certainly don't want to spoil it for the listeners. How much of that is because, as writers, you just don't know yet because how uh, because of how interactive everything is with each other? Uh, I would say it's probably a good mix of not having gotten there yet, as well as um, not being able to say. We have a general sense of where it's going, um, and we have a plan for a certain number of seasons if we are fortunate enough to be renewed for the full breadth of seasons that we envision, um, which is again, kind of similar to television. I know that is how it tends to run in television as well. Um, so each time that we get together, of course we talk about um, how to work with what we've got, which is the season that we've been renewed for and how to create a satisfying arc within that season on the off chance that if, perhaps it doesn't get renewed, which of course we always hope it does, but on the off chance, we want it to have somewhat of a satisfying conclusion in case that's all you get from these characters while leaving it open enough to be able to explore the full story that we do have in mind. 
Okay. So how much of a culture shock was this writing style for you, given that you started with more traditional, I guess, novels? Very much of a culture shock. I was honestly, when they contacted me, um, and I've shared this with my fellow writers, I had no idea, would I even like this process? Like, um, you know, writers can be very um, stubborn about their ideas and, you know, not want to relinquish control. And I think that's true for me of my own worlds that I create on my own. And I just wasn't sure, is that how I will feel when diving into this shared world between us? Um, and luckily, speaking for myself, when I got into the writer's room and we really got into it and got used to the rhythm of how it works, it was so much fun. It's just, it's so inspiring to sit there with these, your fellow writers, your colleagues, uh, working with brilliant minds. And it's kind of like, I mean, I'm not a jazz musician, so I don't know for sure, but the way that jazz musicians talking talk about, you know, improvising together, it feels a little bit like that. You know, it feels like we're in the flow together and we're coming up with these wonderful ideas together. And of course, we have our moments where we're tapping our pencils on the table and just struggling. <laughs> so it's not all easy or anything. But yeah, I, I feel like it was definitely a culture shock, but a welcome one. All right. So, okay. so normally at this point we ask, we talk about some of the reviews that we've gotten from some readers, but since we couldn't find any, instead, I want to ask you, what do you hope that people will take from Ninth Step Station? That's a good question. Uh, I think a lot of what we think about with Ninth Step, uh, it pertains to how technology can both aid and hinder both crime and law enforcement. So that's one angle. You know, how can a piece of technology, both in the story as well as just then looking, taking what you experience in the story and then looking at the real world, how can a piece of technology aid criminals in becoming uh, more effective criminals? But then in turn, how can law enforcement also use similar or the same technology to be better at what they do, at finding and apprehending you know, say violent criminals like murderers, how, how can they utilize technology to, to be more effective at that? And how do you kind of balance the two? How do you balance the privacy issues that can come with some of these pieces of technology against wanting to keep people safe? It's a very, very common theme in our world today. Uh, and then bigger picture wise, there's also the question as far as the geopolitical things happening in Ninth Step Station. What are, the question is what, what will a person or a country or a people be willing to sacrifice or do for peace? And what is peace even? You know, how, how do you attain peace and, and what, how are you defining peace? And that's definitely a very big question and a very big theme throughout Ninth Step Station. Outstanding. Well, since we mentioned reviews, as usual, dear listener, I urge you to rate and review content that you enjoy. It helps the right readers find the right literary masterpieces. So please be kind and speak your minds on the reviewing platforms. And on that note, we are going to briefly pause while we shamelessly shill for the man. Hey listeners, Josh Hayes here, co-host of Keystroke Medium. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Sci-Fi Shenanigans. I tell you, we're really excited about what JR and Chris are doing with the podcast and are proud to feature them as part of our podcast partner network. 
When you get done listening to this episode, I'd like to invite you to come check out our own podcast at keystrokemedium.com. You can find all our previous episodes and check out all the amazing authors we've had on the show. If you're free on Mondays, mark your calendars for 11 a.m. Come hang out with us as we talk to today's leading science fiction and fantasy authors and other industry professionals. We've got a great live audience who get into a lot of shenanigans of their own, as JR and Chris can attest. That's every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, live on Keystroke Media. We're going to talk about some reading, we're going to talk about some writing, and of course, everything in between. And now I'll let you get back to some more shenanigans with JR and Chris. Have a great day. All right, welcome back. We still have Miss J here, and we are talking about her cereals with Cereal Box. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and the next question, since we haven't scared her off yet, is yours, Winder. All right, so let's talk about alternates. How'd you come up with the idea or the premise for this, or, or was this riffing off someone else? We have a head writer on alternates as well. Um, so she's the one that came up with the initial concept. Um, and of course, much like Ninth Step, we all got together in the writer's room and really fleshed everything out. And so, of course, the, the overall concept is this uh, kind of video game uh, MMO situation oh. that, the, that the characters are put into in order to divvy up resources and resolve international conflicts. So have you seen have you seen the movie for I think it was the late 80s, early 90s, Spies Like Us? I have not. It's uh, it's got the guys from Stripes in it. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie either, but uh, they had it similar to that. But the the world issues were solved on a game of Risk. Nice. Well, <laughs> I'm there sort you of go. I'm sort of picturing that vibe, but I like it. Yeah, it's kind of a, the, the genre is um, lit RPG, and I mean it was something today that people might be familiar with are. I think there are several anime series that feature people getting sucked into their video games and, and everything is very real. Um, I think Sword Art Online is one, um, and there are a few others as well. And while the stories are very different from Alternus, it's kind of this concept of the the story itself is about the experience of being inside that video game. Okay. So so I'm curious, how much how much does the does the universe, the story, the uh, uh, everything grow? from the beginning when you're presented with the, the universe Bible until everyone actually goes and starts writing, does it double triple in size? You think? <laughs> I guess it depends probably on the project, but it always grows pretty significantly. Um, probably because when you get multiple minds trying to work on something together, of course you're just having, you are uh, receiving that much more input about the story and it can't help but grow. Um, and it kind of grows in my mind and, and kind of a, almost a spiraling out kind of uh, direction rather than linear. You know, different people are bringing different things to the table and um, we all have different um, ideas that we offer up and then expand on together about where we would take the story and what kind of themes we want to extract from the story and what the ways we want each character to interact with the world and with the themes and with the direction that we're taking the story. Okay. What, what can you tell us about the main character in Alternus without giving away any spoilers? Uh, we definitely have, I would say one main character, but also a kind of an ensemble. Um, beyond that, Tandy is the main character and she is a, uh, she, she kind of works a white collar job, you know, just your everyday sort of white collar job, but she also is a game designer in her free time. Unfortunately, she's not super good at it right now. <laughs> um, she's she's uh, a little bit of a perfectionist. So some of her um, 
inability to get off the ground as a game designer is her own, the limitation she's putting on herself by being a little bit of a perfectionist and it's never good enough for her to put out into the world. So she just continues to pick away at that. And of course, none of us know what that's like, right? <laughs> um, and uh, she, she also has a tendency to come up with ideas for the world that she's building in her game and the, the bad guys in her game that are very uh, tropey. <laughs> so she's not the most original thinker when it comes to the creative elements of her game. Um, but it's endearing. She's an endearing character. She's very human. She has a lot going on in her life that a lot of us can relate to, worrying about what the people around us think either about us or about the work we've produced, um, you know, worrying about her position in the world, just the fact that she feels a little bit mediocre. I think a lot of us feel that way. So I think she's very endearing. And the things she goes through, through over the course, through, over the course of the first season of Alternus definitely help her stretch her muscles a little bit and grow as a person. Nice. What, what about any uh, secondary characters you can tell us about without spoilers? Sure. We've got Team USA. Uh, now, the, the video game is divided up into teams. Each country that participates in the video game in order to, again, resolve conflicts and divvy up resources and the like, it's a national team. And so we've got Tandy. We've got Dante, who is a professional gamer, kind of like a Twitch streamer. Um, we have Edda, who is a diplomat. We have Ben, who works for the military. And they all work together... Uh, for better or worse. <laughs> nice. And uh, finally, does your story have any bad guys, or does it? Is it kind of the uh, the bad guy of the week who, who they're fighting that time? Both. Uh, well, and I think that antagonist is probably a better word uh, for some of the people in the story, such as the other teams, the other national teams. For example, the Koreans are really good at the game. Uh, and so they're just a constant thorn in the side of Team USA. Same for Team Russia. Um, so they're they're often coming up against Team, uh, team Russia and Team Korea. And then you have the actual bad guys in the game, which are definitely wahaha mustache-twirling villains, uh, such as the Skull King. So you have actual classic villains uh video game villains fantasy villains and that's a lot of fun to write all right so you already told us what this uh alternate was similar to so we'll skip that and we'll move on so we know every literary universe has its own internally consistent technology and rules of science so in alternate what can we expect tech wise it's interesting with something like lit rpg as a subgenre. so with alternus because you have the level of tech that exists in the world as a whole, the real world, the supposed real world of, you know, Earth. And it's uh, similar to Ninth Step in the sense that it's not super far into the future, but it's far enough that we have tech that we don't currently have, such as the ability to create this worldwide video game that people are immersed in to the point that they can feel pain. And it's like, a it's, it's, you know, VR in the true sense that we typically see in science fiction of it's, it's like a real experience. We certainly don't have that in the real world at this point. However, most of what you're experiencing in the narrative is actually more fantasy, even though the story is science fiction, because it's a fantasy genre video game. So you will have kind of the the HUD, you know, the overlay of accessing your inventory and, you know, talking to the other players and your different chat channels and things like that. 
but the characters and the enemies you're encountering are, you know, wizards and uh, random ladybugs when you're low level that you have to kill, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really fun kind of blend of the two. So I have played way too many hours sunk into games like Fallout and Skyrim and and all the other Elder Scrolls properties. So I've noticed a trend with many, um, li- or excuse me, with many uh, massively multiplayer on- online role playing game. Wow, I butchered that. People aren't going to think I know what I'm talking about. But there's always <laughs> that first that first mission where somebody sends you in a basement to kill rats. Yeah. So did you have to kill rats in this game? We had our version of that for sure. There's like, you know, talking to the to the character at the inn who sends you over to farmer so and so in order to like help him out with his infestation and his crops. We definitely had that. And grinding levels where you just have to continually kill the same mob over and over, waiting for it to respawn in yep. order to get leveled up enough to take the next boss. Yeah, we have that for uh, sure. So how uh, I don't know how crunchy is the um is the story. So are you like giving stats or like you, you would, I guess, display them in the text or have the narrator read them where it's like, oh, you've gained 10 more po- skill points or do you just uh, say they leveled up? Like how, how um, in-game mechanics do you get for the lit RPG story? We tried to strike a happy medium there because lit RPG as a subgenre is crunchy. Like it really gets into the nitty gritty of these stats. And um, people who enjoy lit RPG and specifically want that We wanted to satisfy them, but we also didn't want to alienate people who aren't familiar with the subgenre and uh, might be put off by a little bit too much dwelling on the stats. So we definitely do have them leveling up. We assign hit points and different, you know, we allocate different skills and whatnot. And we definitely have status effects and we talk about that and dispelling them. And we really get into the mechanics of different mini bosses or boss fights. But we don't go so far into it that people who don't want to spend hours thinking about stats uh, will get bored. So we, we definitely struck a balance on that. Okay. So uh, does this universe then have aliens or just the in-game monsters? No, we just have the in-game monsters on this uh, on this one as well. We I did write about aliens in one of my short stories, the one in To Shape the Dark. And the novel I'm currently work on, working on has aliens as well, um, but not Ninth Step and not Alternus. Right, I've been dying to know because I find this fascinating. So we're going to pause real quick, and I'm going to ask this uh, in general. When you create your aliens, do you create them out of whole cloth, or do you let nature inspire you or find a happy medium? I am more than happy to talk about this because aliens are kind of my jam. So. Me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I do a little bit of both. I when designing the creatures or the beings rather in that short story I mentioned in this novel of the same universe that I'm working on, I spent several years looking into xenobiology and studying philosophy of mind. Because for me, one of the biggest questions is what is it like to be this, this being, this kind of being. And so, uh, you know, I kind of started Thomas Nagel's, what is it like to be a bat in philosophy of mind and moved out from there. So I did a mixture of, what would a particular piece of biology on a given planet, how, how would that influence the way a conscious creature experiences the, the world around them? You know, what is their, their umwelt and what kind of sensoria are we working with? And from there, if they are a conscious creature, how do we then develop an entire culture? And not just one culture, because, you know, a planet is likely not going to be a monoculture, what different kinds of cultures might have arisen with this particular species 
and how would that influence individual cognition? So for me, these are all the things I'm trying to tackle when I'm working with an alien species. So, so for process then, do you start with the finished product? This is what I want the alien, the other beings to be? Or do you start with, this is the environment they're living in, so let me extrapolate forward their biology and then build a culture around that? Which end of the, the, the finished product do you start from? I think in this case, it was, I knew a particular element of the alien communication that I wanted to incorporate. Uh, and from there, I then built out the alien creature and its um, environment, its original environment, in order to flesh out the whole concept. Now, the, the aliens that I'm writing, they actually don't live on their home planet anymore. And so they've had centuries of continued um, existence outside of that home planet environment. They were on a generation ship for a very long time, and now they're on a different planet. So there's also that to contend with. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I started with a communication uh, concept, a, a way of communicating. And I thought, why do they communicate this way? And how does the biology of that work? And how would that influence their cognition? Okay. Well, now let's get back to alternates. Uh, Winders, the next questions are yours, because otherwise we'll just talk, talk about aliens all day, and that's not yeah. what the podcast is. <laughs> All right. So alternates is clearly part of a series, I know, because it says so in the title. Um, there's currently one season available. What can you tell us uh, about the future for this? Or can you tell us anything? I will tell you when I know. Okay. <laughs> we are still waiting to hear about the future of Alternus. Um, it's a lot of fun. I can definitely say that the first season is available. It's fully released. And the narrator for Alternus is none other than Summer Glau. So I think that people will definitely enjoy hearing her uh, per, uh, portray all these characters and just uh, live in the world of the video game. All right. So Thanks. same question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Summer Gloud, she did Firefly, didn't she? She did. Okay. I thought that name sounded familiar. She was also in the um, Terminator TV show. Uh, I forget what it was called. Sarah Connor Chronicles. Okay. So uh, normally we skim the reviews, but like uh, like the last one, this one doesn't have any. So what do you uh, what do you hope that the, that the listeners take from this series? Alternus definitely has some big picture questions about how how to resolve political conflicts. And there are some even bigger questions that will come into play about what's going on in the actual, I guess, mechanics of, of the engine of Alternus that I can't really talk about right now that will pose some more interesting questions as well. Uh, but honestly, a lot of what we want the reader to take away from reading Alternus or listening to it it's just having a lot of fun. It's a fun story. It's uh, amusing. I wouldn't say it's a comedy, but it, there are a lot of comedic moments. The characters are really fun to spend time with. And of course, getting to explore this video game through their eyes is a lot of fun. So, yeah. Okay. Fun. It's important. Yeah. With either series, um, would you, would you be one who would find out if there was another form of media coming out such as uh, a regular novel or video game or TV show or anything like that? I would definitely be informed of that. Um, anything that might be in the works or, you know, any question marks on that regard, I wouldn't be able to talk about um, ah. yet. But <laughs> as soon as if I were to get uh, an okay to talk about anything like that moving forward, I will definitely pepper the internet with that information. <laughs> yes, and we'll have to have you back on the show. Definitely. Oh, for sure. 
<laughs> All right. So was there anything else about the ninth, uh, ninth step station or alternates we didn't ask you that you want to tell us about before moving on? I don't think so. I think that they're both uh, just, I think that they're very different. Um, so they might, might attract either different types of readers or um, readers who just like a lot of different styles of storytelling. But I think that there's something in each of them for everyone if they give them a chance. So I hope they enjoy it. So do you foresee yourself uh, moving past the, uh, the Ninth Step Station in Alternus? Do you foresee yourself uh, creating your own story that you pitch to Serial Box to take a point on? Uh, that is to be determined. Uh, I will talk about that if and when um, I can. <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm not very asking, careful. No, no, I understand. I'm not asking you to, um, I guess, commit to that uh, more in the vein of would being the head writer so, be something you want to tackle? Because uh, that is a lot of commitment. So it's a lot of it's a lot. I would be up for it. I do think I would be up for it. Um, I think it would be more of a question of what else am I? What else? What other responsibilities do I have on my plate at that particular juncture? <laughs> um, so if I'm getting ready to engage in a, in a serious round of edits on a novel, um, that may or may not be the right time. Or maybe it is. And I'm underestimating my ability to balance. <laughs> so we'll just have to see. But I, I have thought about it. And I am, um, I am working on something. <laughs> so when in doubt, you just let your puppy decide. Oh, of that's, course. That's always She's the a, best decision good, maker. Right. Just, you know, left pause, yes. Right pause, no. We just go with it. <laughs> yes. All right. So so enough shameless plugging, Jay. Um, what are you – let's talk about other books. So what are you currently reading in the genre of science fiction? Well, I read two awesome books recently in completely different ways. Uh, one is The Luminous Dead by Caitlin Starling. And it's, of course, if you're not into creepy, uh, this might not be the book for you. But if you're like me, you know, you like to be creeped out. You like to be on the edge of your seat. You like to lose sleep for some strange, like masochistic reason, then this book might be for you. It is beautifully written. And the dynamic between the two characters in the story is claustrophobic in the best possible way. In fact, the entire story is incredibly claustrophobic, but that's a compliment because it's definitely what she was going for. <laughs> um, it takes place in a cave system underground and the sci-fi element is largely the suit that the character is wearing that helps her stay alive. It supplies her with oxygen. It keeps her safe from outside elements that are both uh, just the cave system itself as well as what might be living down there and uh, helps her uh, with her nutrition. And the suit is actually integrated into her internal organs. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting kind of setup. And of course, there are all kinds of questions about the company that sent her down there, the person who is her handler over the uh, intercom, which is the other character. It's just, it's so good. And for people who are looking for queer representation, you've got it in this book. So definitely head on over there, check out The Luminous Dead by Caitlin Starling. And then the other one that I mentioned is the is Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. It's a hefty read. It's a long one. Um, it immediately was evocative of Keith, uh, Stephen King to me, uh, like The Stand and some of his earlier work. Uh, it's an end of the world story. It features uh, a disease of sorts that is essentially causing people to sleepwalk, sort of. I guess that's the best way I can put it without spoilers. 
Um, and there is an element of uh, artificial intelligence in this story that plays a very large role. And it is an ensemble cast. It's, it's quite a sweeping story, which I love. And I thought he really pulled it off. So I recommend it as well. Okay. What about you, Winder? What are you reading in the wild world of science fiction? Uh, I just finished a book called The Reservist by, I don't know, some hack. I can't remember his name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm wrapping up uh, The Land by Aleron Kong. Got, uh, I only got about a half an hour of that book left. Okay. So are you liking The Land? That's a lit RPG like we just talked about. Yeah, this one is really, really crunchy, but... But I think it's presented in a way that it's um, I, I I can just kind of kind of just uh, glaze over those spots and and I don't have to worry about it too much. But yeah, I'm, I'm one of those readers who doesn't like it uh, like it too crunchy. But I, I I think it's a I think it's a decent mix. How age appropriate is that? Because my son's getting into that kind of stuff. Could I let him safely listen? He's twelve. Yeah, um, they. I think the worst I hear is the explanation of what FML means. Okay. Not bad. That, that's worse. And, and there's a, there's a little bit of blood and guts because he's, yeah, he's fighting monsters, but I mean, it's, it's, it's minimal. It's really, really minimal. Awesome. And uh, I just finished, um, I realized that writing all these reviews for books was slowing down my ability just to enjoy reading. And I didn't like that. So some of the series that I read that were just, you know, I, breezed through them uh, i wanted to reread so i could write a series review as opposed to just uh, book by book because it also gets repetitive because what you like about one book is probably what kept you reading the second the third and the tenth so it, it gets to be a lot of the same words over and over again so i just finished the lost fleet by jack campbell and i'm uh, about to work on my review of the series it was, it was pretty good a little bit harder on the science than I like. Uh, we, we interviewed him, John Henry. Uh, he kept the rules of physics in mind. And so sometimes I'm just like drooling, trying not to. But, but the story itself was so good, I didn't care. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. And so finally, we like to remember the science that makes science fiction fun. So are there any new scientific breakthroughs that you're following or excited by, Miss um, J? Well, excited might not be the right word. <laughs> But I think that listeners might find it interesting. I don't know how many of your listeners or if you two have ever watched Black Mirror. Uh, but for anyone who might be listening that isn't familiar with it, it's a Netflix television series. It's an anthology series that kind of harkens back to the Twilight Zone, but it's very firmly science fiction. And there are a number of different predictions that Black Mirror implicitly makes about technology. And one of them is a, is a, is a thing that someone is actually developing right now in the real world that is highly disturbing, <laughs> at least in my opinion. It's um, a California-based company called Hereafter is working on an Alexa-style chatbot that could help people talk to loved ones after they die. No, they heard about that. Take, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they basically take you know, just data from their living, you know, when they were alive, you know, voice recordings, anecdotes about, you know, stories they would tell from their lives, anything you can think of, and they compile it, and they basically kind of create an AI to be able to talk to you back and forth as your loved one, as your loved one who's passed on, which, you know, uh, 
I'm sure many people can imagine why that's a little bit disturbing. So the guy that created it, if I remember correctly, was Russian, correct? And his like his friend, his dad died, and so he was he was doing this so they yeah. could still text. Uh, when we interviewed, and this is going to be a callback, but when we interviewed Yudhanja Verjartney uh, Winder, he mentioned it when we did our lit RPG series back in. Yeah, episode, I remember something about that episode twenty or something along those lines. Yeah. Nah, some no. some freaky stuff, but I think in order for it to work, though, <laughs> you have to have enough written content, like text messages, mm-hmm. uh, voicemails, letters, emails, that sort of thing. You have to have that basis, uh, and so it's going to be harder to do going backwards in history. But now that everything's so digital, I, I imagine those will be more uh, ac- accessible for the everyman. Sure. It's also so. just, it's very interesting to, to question, how does this affect the grieving process, for better or worse? Um, you know, how, is, how does this influence a person's ability to move forward in their lives? Or do they get really stuck in this loop of Ooh. connecting with the person who's no longer here? Uh, yeah, so. Wasn't there a movie about that, too? <laughs> I don't Probably. know. Probably. Probably. It sounds like every uh, tropish sci-fi uh, smart house kind of deal, but I like that, so I'm not judging. <laughs> so, so what about you, Winder? What are you excited by? Well, the uh, the Japanese sent up a cargo ship to deliver fresh batteries and more stuff like that to the uh, to the space station from space.com. It says, uh, a robotic Japanese cargo ship successfully arrived at the International Space Station carrying more than four tons of supplies, including new batteries for the outpost solar power grid. I like the idea of, uh, of robots being able to do this, sort of. But if you, was it General Dynamics? You got that robot that can do backflips now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you missed yeah. the important word from the title of the article, Winder, the unpiloted. That's where it gets a little creepy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's all just a robot. It, it went up there and it figured out what it needed to do. And, and nothing, I, I don't think anything is ever perfect in space. So it had to improvise as well, which is really scary. Um, but I guess I guess eventually when they get a Motel 6 on Mars, they, they, they can have a robot clean our room, right, Jer? That's I mean, right. I can stay at the Hilton on Mars. Just a That's Motel out of 6. our budget. No, sir. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> does this mean that this is up there with uh, self-driving cars in your list of oh, hell no's? Um, I'm not so worried about it because uh, I, I don't plan on venturing out in space anytime soon. So the chance of me getting run over and then backed over so the robot can see and take a picture of what it ran over and then run over again. I don't think it's going to happen. Did you see that uh, the smart car ran over a different robot in um, Vegas? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was like the smart car ran over uh, the cleaning robot or something. So it's already robot on robot crime. Oh, I'm no. okay with that. They can fight each other. <laughs> so, so, Jay, are you as uh, terrified by smart cars as we are? The uh, self-driving car? I have I have mixed feelings about it for sure. <laughs> so this is a couple years old now. So it was just, they were very prescient on their predictions, but NPR had a uh, episode where they talked about this and how they're going to have to build in uh, more, essentially morality algorithms into the self-driving car. So like if you have something malfunction, you've got a bus full of school kids running the intersection. Do they drive the car with only two elderly people? Cause they've lived their life off the cliff to save the bus of kids. Cause those computers are going to have yeah. to make those decisions and that's where it gets a little creepy that they're deciding for you so the com- the robots are going to be making trolley problem decisions that's exactly. the yes. that's what i was yeah. thinking of yep <laughs> trolley problem yep 
I'll link to the trolley problem, dear listener, so you can uh, reference if you're not familiar with it. Ah, oh, so dark. Yeah, it is. It scares me a little bit. And so let me, what about you, dear? So, um, well, we both, Weiner and I both picked articles that we knew would age okay because we're recording this a little bit in advance to fit with Miss J's schedule. But we definitely wanted to have her on because this was too interesting and too outside of the norm of what we were familiar with. So, my article was Shapeshifter Robots Could Explore Volcanoes and Caves on Saturn's Moon Titan. Um, if that title doesn't scare you with visions of Skynet, a callback to uh, her reference to Sarah O'Connor, I don't know what will. Um, I think the title, again, says it all. Uh, but let me give you a brief snippet from the article. In space.com, if you are listening, Winder will take the job as your editor and help you do better on yep. titling. He's, he's available. <laughs> and you could probably afford him for a little bit longer. Yeah. But uh, from the yeah. article, astounding robots straight out of science fiction could re- uh, reimagine Titan exploration. New shape-shifting robots could give us access to distant worlds like never before, including the soupy moon and Titan, a uh, moon Titan in Saturn's neighborhood. NASA's shapeshifter concept promises many robots capable of rolling, flying, floating, and swimming all in one type of machine. Engineers are testing out the concept in the robotic yards at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, uh, California. Uh, NASA describes the prototype as a contraption that looks like a drone encased in an elongated hamster wheel. But that's fine <laughs> since the robot isn't trying to look glamorous. Instead, the point is that it can split into two half wheels, each of which are uh, operate as an independent drone armed with a propeller. Eventually, JPL envisions these robots working in teams uh, of a dozen that could do more than just fly and roll, which scares me. I'm like visioning them swarming at you and like eating you for some reason. I don't know why. It's that horror book she mentioned. It's all Jay's fault. Uh, the article <laughs> the article continues on with a lot more uh, granular details, but you'll have to click the link in the show notes to read the whole thing. Uh, or you could join us in our Facebook group, the listeners of the Dead Robot Society, and, and chat away there. But jokes aside, I do think that this kind of technology is uh, inevitable if we want to fulfill our passion of colonizing the stars with Elon Musk. Um, and anything that lets us learn more about surviving in those harsh environments is a good thing. So, all right, as we wrap this puppy up, Miss J, how can listeners find you? Well, uh, you can find me at my website, jkoyanagi.com. And uh, that site has links to all the other places you can find me, including YouTube. Or if you just search my name on YouTube, it should come up. I'm on Twitter, at jkoyanagi. And same with Instagram, at jkoyanagi. I'm not on Facebook anywhere. um, So you won't find me there. But yeah, you can find me in any of those other places. All right. And Chris, how can listeners find us? Our website is www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter handle is at SFS, that's Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And our Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash sfshenanigans. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder and Seska Smalls, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. Boom.